Welcome to the Living the Dream podcast with Curveball. If you believe, you can achieve. Welcome to the Living the Dream with Curveball podcast, a show where I interview guests that teach, motivate, and inspire. Today, I am joined by Guy Morris. He is an author, a published songwriter for Disney Records, a screenplay writer, and he is retired from a 36-year career in leadership for Fortune 100 software, high-tech, and global energy. So he has an extensive bio. He's done a lot. So we're going to let him tell his story. So Guy, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Curtis. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Why don't you start off by telling everybody a little bit about yourself? Oh, wow. Well, I typically like to try and lay the foundation by saying my journey started as a homeless runaway at age 13. I was I came from a very violent, abusive, and neglectful family I that I tried to escape from. I ultimately went home briefly to get a GED at age 15. And then through a series of what I can only call miracles, I ended up in college, which was, I was no more surprised than anybody else. I was functionally illiterate at the time. I I had never taken an SAT score. I I was a year short of minimum requirements and somehow they let me in, which my first impression at the time was, gee, they'll let anybody in college. I thought it was only for smart people, but I knew it was a chance. I knew it was an opportunity for me to change my stars. and. And so I I worked as if my life depended on it, because I guess I believed that my life depended on it. And ultimately, I was able to graduate with a couple of degrees and a scholarship to grad school. And my scholarship was based on designing a macroeconomic model that outperformed the Federal Reserve and pretty much everybody else in the nation. And that started me off. My first job was at IBM. I worked with Burroughs, which is now Unisys. I got to work with Occidental Petroleum, reporting ultimately reporting to the CXO. I got to work on mergers and acquisitions and transitioning the company to computer technology and early stage artificial intelligence. Then I had some startup software companies and wound up working with Oracle and Microsoft for a number of years. And where I was also had the opportunity to basically write my own job descriptions and and do unique things to move the needle forward. And it's and I, I've been privileged. While I started off really, my my starting point was pretty rough. I I felt blessed in in the opportunities I was given. That said, I my childhood let me, and I didn't realize it for many years, but I knew I struggled with addiction and depression and hyper anxiety and a number of other things that came from having PTSD from my childhood. And so I had to face that. I had to face all of those things. I had to have the rigorous honesty and enough courage to basically face myself and reinvent myself and try to live up to the opportunity and the potentials that I was, the blessings that I was given. And um, I think the other part of myself that I probably like to tell people is one of the things that inspired me the most in college were the men of the Renaissance. They were men of science. They were men of they were architects, they were business people, they were, they knew religion, they knew art. And so I tried to balance out the intense jobs that I have by writing songs, 
recording. I led worship in Venice Beach, California, which is one of the strangest places you'll ever imagine to lead worship. I lived on a boat for a long time. I earned a Coast Guard charter captain license to help that where I could charter out my boat and, and help pay for it and raise my son on board a 50-foot cutter. So I, I've led a wildly diverse life compared to most. And, and those are just a few of the many stories I could probably tell. But yeah, so now I'm, I'm retired. I'm living in the Pacific Northwest on the Puget Sound overlooking the water. And I write novels based on true stories that have either happened to me or that are real stories in history, technology, politics, and religion. Well, I'm sure if you were out performing the Federal Reserve, I'm sure that didn't make them too happy. And I'm sure that probably didn't, didn't go too far or go over too well. Tell us about that. Well, actually, I got a lot of attention from that. The For a number of years, for anybody who follows economics, Alan Greenspan and other Federal Reserve chairmen talked about the their models that used that could predict the economy based on productivity benefits of new technology. And I was the I was the man who developed the beginnings of that model. I, I proved that theory. So I was at a time when most of the models were wildly fluctuating because we were going through a very traumatic time in our economy with high unemployment, high interest rate, but high growth at the same time. I helped explain all of that. And so that got me a lot of attention at the time. That's what won me my scholarship. The federal actually had a number of offers to go move to the East Coast and as part of a bunch of several of the larger banks. And to be honest, after spending it several months in the basement of the computer center at the university, I decided that I really didn't want the rest of my life to be sitting in a dark room writing, uh, building mathematical models. And so I took my scholarship and I decided that I really wanted to continue to grow and change and, and do other things. So it didn't upset them. I think it opened their eyes and and got them to move in a new direction as well. And I, I changed the, the industry of how they model because of it. So what inspired you to become an author? Well, the, the first love books, I, and I discovered the, the joy of reading in college. And my son, when I was raising my son, he was a he loved to read. And uh, being a single parent, I didn't really have a lot of money or extra time to to have a social life. And but I did have a lot of computers around the house because I was always working with computer technologies at work. And so I started writing him a short story. It was called Paolo and the Shark. It was essentially a Hemingway old man in the sea, but targeted towards a 12 year old, 11 year old. And I wanted, to, he loved the book. His cousins loved the book. I never tried to get it published. It was more for just to see that I could. It was just sort of one of those bucket list things to say, well, maybe I could, I could write a book as well as a song. And, and then I started, when I started researching, I like to have books that are based on something real, a real story. And in, in this case, I stumbled, my son was a, you know, like most 12 year olds, he loved pirates and lost treasures and lost civilizations and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And I used to, I loved the, the Caribbean and in, in particular Mesoamerica. I, I love the Mayan empire and the, and the mysteries behind the Maya and, and all of that. So I was studying and actually stumbled onto a true story that mesmerized me. 
And without going into too much detail, the story was that in 1672, Henry Morgan took 36 ships and 2,000 men to raid the city of Panama. Most people know about the sack of Panama. What they don't know is that Morgan brought back close to a billion dollars worth of plunder and 600 slaves. But when he reached his fleet on the Caribbean side, he cheated all of his men and disappeared with almost everything on three ships, 500 slaves, none of it ever seen again. So when Morgan showed up in Jamaica four months later, he was arrested immediately by the British and sent to London because when he raided Panama, he broke a peace treaty. But in London, he's a hero. He had broken the financial back of the Spanish. They never recovered from that. And so they knight him, Sir Henry Morgan. They sent him back to Jamaica with a garrison of soldiers as lieutenant governor to, quote unquote, get rid of piracy. But instead of going after any pirates, except for one man, somebody who cheated him in Panama before he cheated everybody else, he went into this depressed, drunken, haunted debauchery and burned his logbooks. The world would never know what happened to a billion dollars, 30 tons of stuff, three ships and 500 souls. And three years after he died, the whole city of Port Royal sinks into the ocean, including his grave. At the time, many of the locals said they had been cursed by Morgan. So that story fascinated me. And actually, I spent on and off well over a decade, closer to 15 years, trying to solve two mysteries. One is what happened to 30 tons of stuff, three ships and 500 souls, and believing that somebody found must have found something. And in fact, somebody did, a guy named F.A. Mitchell Hedges. I describe it more in my book, but basically he found he found something, but even he was too traumatized or too afraid to talk about how he found what he found. And then the second thing I wanted to try and figure out was what happened to Morgan? What traumatized him? What scared him so profoundly that he would give up a billion dollar plunder he had already killed thousands of people to get? And that journey took me to this particular island. That island was conquered by Morgan's uncle, Edward Morgan. The island, 100 years before that, was an Inquisition massacre that ended a 2,000-year pilgrimage to this island before anyone bothered to ask why people were canoeing 50 miles to get to this place, what was so special about this island. That pilgrimage led me to understand the Mayan 5,000-year calendar and ultimately the Mayan creation myth. And as I said, this was an, a 12-year, 10-year, 12-year adventure or discovery of me of mine to really kind of understand how all these things connected. And by the end of it, I was so enthralled with this epic story that I had to write a book. And that was my, that became one of my first books, The Curse of Cortez. The second major story that really impacted me deeply was a number of years, uh, years ago, during all of this time, I had, because I was in technology, I would, I would constantly be reading science magazines, technology magazines of some type. And I discovered a short article, and it was very, it was an Associated Press article. And the article basically said that a program had escaped the Lawrence Livermore Laboratories at Sandia, which is a well-known NSA spy lab. They do signals and cryptology research. They created the Suxnet virus and and and, and all sorts of uh, far deeply advanced technologies. Again, I became mesmerized with the story. I couldn't put it down. I cut out the article. I taped it onto my monitor. I looked at it every single day for months on end. And I wanted to solve the mystery. I said, well, first off, was it a typo? But did somebody at the Associated Press make a boo-boo and they should have said the program was lost or maybe stolen or maybe malfunctioned? Or did somebody at the laboratory make a boo-boo and, and let this slip out? And 
So I decided to try and reverse engineer it. I tried to figure out, okay, exactly how would a program be architected to escape? Now, escape, in my mind, it implied some kind of intelligence. It implied the ability for the program to move itself. And then finally, it implied that the program could basically erase the logs, the computer logs, so it would basically disguise where it had moved to. Because essentially, the NSA was saying, we lost a program and we don't know how to find it. Well, that's an amazing, astounding set of capabilities to basically have a program that could move about in stealth. And so I started trying to figure out if I were the NSA, what would I want my perfect spy, invisible spy program to do? And so I came up with a number of attributes. Not too long afterwards, about this time, I was one of my closest friends was a film producer. And he was, we were always looking for new ideas of what to write about. And I brought him this idea and we ultimately decided to make a webisode series out of it. So we hired some out of work actors. We did some photo shoots. We wrote scripts. I did all of the programming to make produce it online. And we were a huge hit. We got about 25 different web awards at the time. We were licensed. We were optioned by one of the studios to put this in production. And two weeks before the studio was going to sign the option, two FBI agents showed up at my door. Now, for me, I was thrilled. It basically validated all of the work I had done to try and figure out what this program, how this program had escaped and what it was designed to do. My wife at the time, we'd only been married. This was my second wife. We'd only been married for a couple of years. She was freaking out. In her mind, she was like, you know, so who are you and what did you do? You know, why are the FBI sitting in our dining room? So they ultimately went to the studio and killed the deal. I had to tuck, lost a lot of money. I tucked my tail between my legs and I went and got a job. I think it was at Oracle at that point. But I'd never that incident never really left me. And so when I retired in 2019, 2018, 19, and I decided that for my third act career, I wanted to be an author. I resurrected the curse of Cortez, that story and rewrote that and brought that up to date. And then I created the espionage series that I wrote, which started with the book called Swarm. And Swarm deals with this, this program which I've now made into a character in the story, along with other advanced technologies in terms of what DARPA is doing with AI, in terms of weapons development and cybersecurity and cyber espionage. And I involved it with 2020 election issues and and tried to make it a very current, plausible scenario. And it again, it was trying to, discovering something that I thought was so fascinating that becoming an author was the most logical way for me to really talk about it in a way that was fun to digest. Not just not just something a nerd would really want to know, but a story like a James Bond meets Indiana Jones meets Dan Brown was my goal. And uh, I've ironically I've Many of the reviewers have compared me to Dan Brown or Robert Ludlum. And so, yeah, that was those were the the inspirations. And then each book essentially has other true stories behind it. The true story that inspired my latest book, The Last Ark, came when I discovered that the Ark of the Covenant that's been in Ethiopia for 2,600 years in January 21 was stolen and sold on the black market after 750 men, women, and children were massacred trying to protect it. So the last arc deals with who bought it. My speculation is to who would who would want to buy it, who would have the influence and the power to basically set up that kind of massacre. 
and why would they want an ancient Jewish relic? And that combines with a second true story of a copper scroll that was found near the ruins of Qumran in Israel in the 1960s. And that copper scroll, once they were able to open it up and read it, had 64 locations where temple priests had hidden billions of dollars of temple treasures before the Babylonian invasion. In the 64th location is a second copper scroll that describes where Jeremiah hid the Ark of Testimony made by Moses. So the last Ark deals with this program that has escaped, has now decoded end-time prophecy, and none of the other characters in the book really understand what that means, including in some senses the program, but it's leading them to basically put the breadcrumbs together about how these things are fulfilling prophecy. So it deals with politics and and global events. Ukraine will come up. The solar winds hack will come up. The brand corporation studies to the DOD are brought into the story, along with some of the religious elements. And I like to combine the technology with the politics and the religion to create a really great layered tale. Well, you're also a published songwriter for Disney Records. So so tell us uh, all about that and how that came about. Well, I was a songwriter and, and I had a friend who, who again, my, my film producer friend, wanted to go pitch Nickelodeon. He wanted to pitch Nickelodeon on the idea of creating sort of an MTV music channel, but for kids. And I said, well, you know, you're going to, and I said, well, that's an interesting idea, I suppose. I said, I don't really know much about kids music. My son was 12 and he, he was more into hip hop. And so he said, well, I know, but he said, would you write me some songs? And I said, well, sure, I guess, I suppose. So I wrote him about five songs. I spent like a a weekend or a week or something, wrote him five songs and tried to kind of put my best, you know, Charlie Brown, Calvin and Hobbes, you know, (laughs) head on. And he loved all the songs. He basically paid for us to go into the studio to record them. And his pitch to Nickelodeon didn't go anywhere. He, He didn't get the job. So I honestly forgot about it. I didn't really think much about it. I had a copy of the cassette tape, and that was about it. And uh, about six months later, I got a phone call out of the blue from a guy named, and I'm trying to remember his name, but his last name was Harold, or his first name was Harold, and I can't remember his last name. But he called me up, and he says, I'm Harold, blah, blah, blah. And he says, I'm from Disney Records. I want to talk to you about your, your tape that you sent in. Well, I knew that I had never sent in a tape, so my first thought was, one of my friends pranking me. So I thought, you know, and I, I said, is this Alex? You know, I'm just laughing at this. I said, I, he says, no, no, you sent me a tape. I said, I never send anybody any tapes. I said, I, I just never do that. He said, so he started reading off the titles of the songs. And I realized that my friend Jack had sent him the tape. So, um, and so he wanted to know if I would come in. They had now Disney, in addition to their movies, and they still do this today, they'll take the theme of their different popular brands and and they make toys that they sell at the theme parks. And so you might get a stuffed animal or a stuffed toy, and with it might come, at the time it was a cassette tape, then they turned it to CDs with some songs to go with The Little Mermaid or, you know, Aladdin, or they had a Scary Songs project, and they had all these different projects that they would produce. And so they would contract with me. They they would call me up and say, we, you know, we, we want to work on a scary song project. And, and so we need songs that are basically about kids being scared of the, the lightning or the thunder or the ghosts or whatever. 
<clears throat> and you'd get typically about a week or so, maybe two at the most, to write some songs, do a simple production of them and get them in. And if they liked them, they would sign a contract and they would buy that song from you. And if you were lucky, then the song would actually end up on the project and you'd get some royalties out of it. So I worked for them for a couple of years. They would call me up every two or three months and say, we've got a new project. And I worked on an Aladdin project and I worked on a little mermaid project and I worked on a scary songs and I worked on a project for, um, they had a television show back then called the dinosaurs. It was basically an animated or puppet type of show. And uh, I worked on that project. And I think there was one or two others that I can't remember right off the top of my head. But yeah, so that was. And I had a real job at the time. I was uh, this was just something I did sort of on the side because it was fun. And um, it got me a little bit of pocket change that I was using and saving to basically help send my kid to my son to, to college. And um, it was an interesting experience. And I finally, you know, I, I quit. When it started to become a little bit more of a nuisance and less fun. And one of the producers that Disney was working with decided that he loved one of my songs except for one line. He didn't like one line, wanted me to rewrite one line. And he sent his girlfriend to my, I was living on a boat at the time. And he sent his girlfriend to my boat to basically supposedly help me rewrite that one line. By the time she had gotten there, I'd already rewritten the line. It was, it was a great new line. She loved it. And but because he had decided to send her to my boat to say she loved my line, they wanted to give her 50 percent of my royalties. And I said, well, no. So you can have the song, but I don't want to work with you anymore. So that was kind of the end of it. So I noticed when you were talking about your books, you seem to do a lot of in-depth research. So, so talk about how you research and discover all of the amazing information that you put in your books. Well, some of it, and for The Curse of Cortez, which took much longer than, than most of the others, I actually went to the Caribbean. I was explored a number of Mayan ruins. I went diving off of sites. Again, I was trying to solve a mystery. So I was trying to go look at the places that I thought might be involved in this mystery. And in a few times, I would, would actually try and interview some of the older people that understood some of the older folklore and and. That might not be in books, but I'd, I'd go to libraries, I'd search online. Curse of Cortez involved research into um, Morgan and his his raid of Panama. I read the biographer that was actually on the raid with Morgan that wrote a book about it. And, and I pretty much went to every place that had Morgan's name slapped on a tourist door and tried to understand how would you... Where could you actually lose 30 tons of stuff, three ships and 500 souls? Uh, and that research led me to under researching the particular island that finally discovered was involved. Now, the guy, F.A. Mitchell Hedges, was a British explorer who, from 1906 to 1911, dug on this island for, for several years, uncovered thousands of artifacts, mainly broken pottery shards and other things. And six, a few months before he disappeared from the island, he claimed he had found Atlantis, which I thought was an interesting claim. And then he shows up in New York with $6 million of 1911. So that's like 250, 270 million today. Uh, and when they asked him how he found it, and he had smelted it down. So nobody knew where it would come, where it had come from. And so when they asked him where the gold came from, he lied to him and they knew he was lying to him. He went to London, bought a castle and wrote his memoir called Danger My Ally. And in his memoir, he never spoke about how he found the gold on Roatan 
or the other thing he was famous for, which is finding the crystal skull in Labantun, Honduras, which is about 50 miles away over water. So I went to the island, I diving, I started read books on, tried to understand how that tied to Mayan mythology. So I read books on Mayan mythology and ultimately tied now in the Mayan mythology, they they talk about the world being created and then destroyed three times before the Spanish had showed up in 1514. And this tied into their 5,000 year calendar. So the calendar that's their calendar that started in 3300 BC and ended in 2012 was part of that calendar. So that was their fourth incarnation of the world. So they called them epochs. And I realized that in the second incarnation, the world was destroyed by a massive fire and flood, which when I look back on the timeline and I look back on how they described their destruction, it lined up to the younger asteroid, younger Dryas asteroid event 13,000 years ago. So I started looking up more geology about this island to realize that this island was actually at the time was a was a dry mountain range. It was actually ca- called part of the Bay Islands off of Honduras and Belize. And at the time it was on dry land. So this dry land set of mountain top, you know, volcanic mountains were flooded after the Younger Dryas event. And so I realized it took me a while before I realized that it tied into not only the Mayan creation myth, but their myth of what they call Jilbaba, which is their underwater place of death and fear. So I realized that their myths were really describing this epic destruction of what once must have been their part of their civilization. So it was, it was just a number of years. I went during part of one of the episodes that happened in my research was that I had, at the time, I had, uh, because I had a corporate job, I had bought a condo in Cancun, and that was my base for doing a lot of these journeys. And on one dive trip, I came back and realized that a cartel thug, he was actually an Israeli, who was wanted by Interpol, who was wanted by the FBI, was in Cancun, and he was doing dirty work for the Zeta cartel, and then as he would basically live by conning his way into condos, uh, mainly Americans and Canadians, and then refusing to leave. And legally, it would take two, three years and probably about $50,000 to legally get him to move out. Well, when I confronted him, I got back from my trip and I confronted him, he threatened to kill me if I messed with him. I don't know what to tell you, Curtis. That That just struck a nerve with me. That was, I grew up on the streets in LA, being a homeless kid, I had grown up, grown up in some pretty tough neighborhoods. And so that was a, oh, no, you didn't kind of moment for me. So I basically, I don't, won't use the vulgar terms that he used at the time, but told him he didn't have the, he didn't have the cojones to basically mess with me. And that if he wasn't out in two days that he would regret it. So I spent several months, uh, three, four months, basically making sure I cost him everything he owned. And I, once I got him out of the condo and got him arrested and got him in jail and cost him everything he owned, I put him in the book as one of the villains. So I could, and that's how I got my twofer in life. <laughs> so, yeah. So uh, now with the other books, with the artificial intelligence research, a lot of that was search online, going to libraries, talking to various uh, cyber 
technology experts and I was at, I worked at Microsoft so I, I knew a lot of guys who understood artificial intelligence and understood some of the issues around cybersecurity and I had been involved with a few of them and so I, I used some of my own experience and I did a lot of research with the, kind of the latest technologies and and tried to make sure I could bring out what I thought were some of the pertinent issues and so one of them being um one of the things that seems to come out in the book is a weapon system that DARPA is now working on. And it's essentially, it's they have two versions. One is called the, the, uh, the Navy has it, and it, I can't remember, the, it's called the Locust. And it's a set of about six inch drones and that are connected to each other. Basically a thousand, I think they, they shoot them off in, the, in volumes of a thousand. And they they swarm through various places to provide Imagine a, uh, a village in the Middle East or a village someplace where you don't really want to send in your combat, your your army, your people to basically to s clear the village because that's people, lots of places for people to hide. It's easy for people to for people to get killed in that kind of scenario. It's these small villages can be sometimes the most lethal places to to operate. And so the swarm was basically designed to do reconnaissance in these very dense lots of back alleys over walls kind of places where these the swarm of these drones would go in and with high-speed cameras basically swarm through an area darp is now working on a new version and they were at the time they were working on a 15 inch or an 18 inch version of these that were weaponized so imagine being surrounded by hundreds or thousands of these weaponized drones and if you know while you're trying to swat some out of the air or shoot some out of the air in front of you, some are coming up behind you and exploding. So they actually tested a version of these drones in the Gaza-Gaza, the non-lethal version in the Gaza-Gaza war. And when I started researching it, I realized that this these drones were, because of the volume of them and, and how the fast speed that they worked and everything else, in most cases, we use weapon systems where there's a person behind the trigger, right? There, somebody has to, and in all of the other drones that we've seen in the Middle East, there has to be somebody at some and some base basically deciding that they were going to crash that drone or, or explode that drone into a building, for example. Well, with these hyper-connected drones, there's way too advanced and too too many of them for that to happen. So they're now creating essentially autonomous lethal weapon systems. And there is a treaty. There's a worldwide treaty called LAWS, Lethal Autonomous Weapon Systems Treaty. And 140 countries have signed on to it, except for China, the US, Russia, Iran, and North Korea. So all of the countries you'd really want to basically having signed on to this treaty are the ones that haven't. And so I deal with some of the moral implications of that and some of the ways that these things could, could uh, gee, what could go wrong. And so I, as I said, I when I start researching, I'll explore different avenues, philosophical avenues, technology, the politics behind the use of some of those things, the religious implications behind some of those things. And I, I weave all that into my books and, and create a, a Dan Brown-like story that kind of involves um, all of these true facts. Okay, well, you also created the Author Event Network. So tell us about that and why you got that started. Well, as an indie author, I think in part because I think of the intensity of this topics that I, I write about, 
you know, most publishers are looking for that the celebrity factor in 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 signing on new authors or or the you know sort of what's currently marketable. And so I I wrote when I first started writing my books, I was more focused on writing great books as opposed to marketing my books. And so I really kind of ignored promotion and marketing to a great extent. But I wanted to be able to get my books out to readers. And and I did some book signings at Barnes and Noble, some local Barnes and Nobles, and those went really well. I sold out the books that they had purchased, and and even in one case, they had to order a bunch more. I sold way more than they had ordered, uh, and uh, which was great. But those were one-off events. You can typically get a book signing, and unless you're a major author where you can travel around the whole country and get paid to travel around the whole country signing books, it's really hard to really build a a a a revenue stream from these one-off events. And I was actually um, had found a small group here local in the Puget Sound that did this, that went to this one event called the Blackberry Festival. And there's about 25, 30,000 people that showed up to this Blackberry Festival event. And they had set up a tent. And in the tent were different authors. There was a children's author, an inspirational author, and crime fiction, and science fiction, and fantasy, and I wrote thrillers. And so I, I went. I decided to, to pay my share. So basically, we split the cost of the, the the booth between the authors, and I did that as a test to see how it would go. Not, you know, initially thinking, gee, you know, I'm a booth at a at a local fair that doesn't seem to have the same prestige as sitting at a table and at the front of a Barnes and Noble. But what I discovered was amazing. I discovered all kinds of new readers and I got to engage with them directly about the stories that I'm telling you about that went into my book and, and, and watch the light in their eyes when they would say, Ooh, that sounds cool. That sounds interesting. And I sold a lot of books. And so a few weeks after that, I, I was at a different event at a different part of town and they have about 50,000 people going to this event. It's called salmon days. And and I was there to help another friend who owned an Asian art gallery, art art and furniture gallery on the main street where this event took place. And she just wanted some friends to come and help her because it was always really crowded and they, they were they just more people in the store than she could really kind of talk to. And so I'm sitting there and I'm watching thousands of people walk in front of this store. And it dawned on me that I could that there were probably 20 or 30 different events like that each year, every single year that went on in, in the Seattle area. And so I decided that this was a business opportunity. And there, when I walked the event, they were uh, typical. There were crafts and there were candles and there were spices and there was somebody selling honey and there were somebody, people selling food and jewelry and art and, and T-shirts and toys and uh, all the kinds of things you would typically see at one of these types of festivals, and but no books. And so I formed the Author Event Network in, Jan in January 21 with the idea that I was going to find other authors like myself who were writing great books, but just needed to better way to engage and find new readers. And so it started off pretty slow. But by the end of the year, we had about 35 authors. We have about 38 now. We've started a chapter in Portland, do events down there. We did about 10 events in 2021. 
I missed some of the big ones because I just didn't have enough people to sign up for them at the time. Uh, but this year, we're, we're basically on track to do about 20, 25 different events. We'll be busy almost every weekend from the end of May through the end of September, and then a few weekends on, on either side of that. And, uh, and it's a great opportunity. We get to go, and depending upon the event and how popular it is or how many people will be there, they can be anywhere from a few thousand to 25 or 50,000 people. And we'll either have a 10-foot tent or we'll have a 20-foot tent at these events. And we'll have anywhere from three to four to eight or nine different authors. And it's been hugely popular. All of the authors are making money. They're engaging their readers. They're building their platform. They make the biggest margins that they can because they're buying it rather than having Amazon or Barnes and Noble taking a big piece of their their revenue, they're keeping it. They're basically buying at their author copy price and they're selling it at the retail price. And so it's been hugely popular. And so we're now starting into our second year. I've had some in people expressing interest in starting chapters in, in other parts of the country. And, um, and as I said, I'm right now, I've been doing it as I've been doing all the work for it as a nonprofit. No, the AEN doesn't take any cut of anybody's action. I was just starting it so I could go do as many events as I possibly could and sell as many books as I could. So it's been, been a great, great experience and we're really enjoying the, the interaction with readers. So besides that, what else are you working on that people need to know about? Oh, well, I, for a while, I was a president of a small nonprofit that raised money for children with cancer in the Philippines. I'm still involved with the, the group, but I resigned. I retired from being the president. And But right now, those are really the big things that I'm, I'm involved in. I'm trying to start to schedule more travel so I can get more ideas and do more research for some of my future books. I'm working on a new book, and, and we're now doing um, interviews at the local, we have a local public access television station. So we're doing author interviews a couple times a quarter for the Author Event Network. And between all of those things and doing podcasts and doing promotional work, I'm also working with a PR consultant because of my research and my expertise in cyber technology and artificial intelligence and some of these historical areas. There's an opportunity for me to basically find um, work with a PR consultant to create a press kit and a, a real a video reel and to get some television spots. So trying to kind of learn how to promote the book by going on TV. So I one thing I never do well is is sit around and and have a very dysfunctional relationship with leisure. I'm not good at just relaxing. So if I have any spare time, I'm usually trying to figure out a way to make it productive. And so between podcasts and the television and PR and uh, Arthur Event Network and working on my new books and planning some travel for my new books and uh, staying involved on, on the periphery now, but not as not as deeply in some of these nonprofits, I, I, I tend to stay pretty busy. Okay, so so listeners can keep up with everything that you're up to. Throw out your website. Um, you can to my website is guymorrisbooks.com. It's a if you're interested in the kind of thriller books that are well written and well researched, it's a great place to start. It has buy links 
which I'll be actually updating. I've just added about eight new places where my books will be sold. So I've got to update the website for those. But it will also have um, image libraries of actual locations and technology being used. It has some videos and, and great produced trailers. It has highlights to some of my major reviews from industry leaders such as Kirkus, Book Life, Book Trib, and others. Readers' favorite, a number of those, as, as well as a links to all those reviews. And I include fact versus fiction pages. So if I'm doing research on artificial intelligence and I'm talking about how artificial intelligence can code itself, basically is learning to decode itself, I'll provide links to some of those, some of that research. And then fact versus fiction so that you could read through and say, well, this is a fact and this is a fact and this is fact. And oh, by the way, I just made that part up. So it helps with the transparency for, for people to really understand the real world in which we live and 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 how dynamic and a little bit scary it is in, at times. So, Okay, we'll close this out with some final thoughts for the listeners. Maybe there's something that I forgot to touch on that you would like to touch on or just any final uh, thoughts? Uh, you could also find me on Twitter and Facebook and LinkedIn and Instagram. I think are the major social media sites that I'm involved with. And you can find me as Guy Morris Books on most of those or or just Guy Guy B. Morris on LinkedIn. And uh, happy to have followers. And for people who have questions, I'm always happy to engage with them. Yeah, ladies and gentlemen, and if you know of any authors that want to participate or start a chapter in the Author Event Network, send this episode to them. Please be sure to follow, rate, review. And if you have any guest suggestions or topics, see Jackson102 at Cox.net. Be sure to support Guy and everything that he's up to. Guy, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much, Curtis. I appreciate the time. For more information on the Living the Dream podcast, visit www.djcurveball.com. Until next time, stay focused on living the dream.